podcast. Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. And Ellie. And we are the Queer Arabs. And we also have Killian on the line. Hello, everybody. This is Killian. Um, so Killian is from our Arabic side of the podcast. Ellie and I are on the English side of the podcast. I'm half Saudi and a lesbian. And then I am bi, trans, Lebanese and Killian. I am a Muslim queer born and raised in Iraq and currently live in the U.S. Yep. Excellent. And that is true for us too. And we have an awesome guest on today. Danny, can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Ahmed Danny Ramadan, but to make it easier for everyone, please call me Danny. Hey, Danny. Uh, hi. <laughs> and I'm a queer Syrian man, cisgender man, born and raised in Damascus, and I live at the moment in Vancouver, Canada. Awesome. We're so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for being here. Sure. I'm looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> yes, me too. So how long have you lived in Vancouver? Almost four years now. I arrived in September 2014. I lived before as a, a queer refugee in Lebanon for two years. And I arrived here, yeah, in September 2014. Oh, wow. How do you like Vancouver? It took a while to like Vancouver. The people think that when you arrive as a refugee into a new country, you're just like embraced at the airport and somebody starts making out with you for no apparent reason. And then edits <laughs> of the movie rolled down. <laughs> It's not the happy ending. This is not a Julia Roberts movie. If it was, Julia Roberts would be, play me, but uh, that's besides the point. <laughs> I, uh, I, I would, I'd be down for a Julia Roberts movie where she was in drag the whole movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a white cis woman playing a queer brown Syrian refugee. Makes perfect sense. I, yeah, I mean, it's not the first time, basically. Like a Persian uh, poet. That that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, in any case, uh, yeah. So the first while it, I was lonely, I was on my own, and then I started finding friends and building community and doing my thing. And now I love this country and I I love everything that it stands for. Awesome. Killian just recently went to Vancouver and seemed to really like it. So only if I know you a month ago, Danny. Unfortunately, oh. yeah, I, I was there. I was. Lonely and sad. Well, no, I wasn't lonely. And sad. I, I was, I was lonely, but I wasn't sad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very beautiful city. But again, my, my perspective is, was a tourist. You know, unlike you, you yeah. moved to a new country, and I could relate to your experience as well because I came as a refugee to the U.S. as well. Except that was like a decade ago, and yeah, when I arrived and like look at the reality check, I was like, what the f? Yeah. <laughs> Like, so, what is going on? Yeah, what is, am I going to do all of that? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, I could relate to your own experiment, you know. Um, but it, it gets better after a while. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 And God, God, God bless Grinder. You know, God bless Grinder. No, no gay man left God alone. damn it, Killian. Every time, Killian. <laughs> um, and I'm Seriously. sure Killian appreciated Grinder here in Vancouver. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I was so busy and I forgot about, you know, my my best friend Grinder because there's so many things to do in Vancouver. And I, I came, uh, I believe it was uh, April or May when I went there. So the weather was perfect, was super warm. And, you know, daylight lasts until I believe um, 9.30 or something like that. Wow. So, so technically, when I'm home, I'm like I'm almost dead when I'm home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, I mean, next time. Yeah, I was hoping to catch Justin Trudeau on Grinder, but unfortunately, he wasn't available. <laughs> I I met him before. I met him before, not on Grinder. I'm but so I... jealous. <laughs> I'm so jealous, Daddy. No, no, we understand you need to keep it discreet with certain people. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. How what? How like how was that meeting him? Um, I was invited to speak at the Liberal Party convention uh, the first year that he was uh, elected as uh, Prime Minister. So I ended up, uh, he actually listened to one of my speeches at the convention, and then I ended up shaking hands with him. And then he's like, hey, do you want to take a selfie? And I ended what? up like, like I, yeah, seriously, I have this like beautiful selfie that he took of us. That I was like, oh, that's, yeah, it's, it's on my profile on Facebook. What? And, yeah, and like... I didn't expect it, but like a week later, I was invited to the un un unveiling of the uh, pride flag on the uh, government hill in Ottawa. And I go there, and here is, lo and behold, here's Justin Trudeau again. Again? With and I'm like, done, let's do this. You're like, hey, Justin. Like, hey, bro. First, hey, bro, we, we go back. We go way back, you and I, like a week. We go like, <laughs> oh my God, I can imagine Killian just like, dropping dead right now man our I, I, degrees I'll, of separation just, to yeah, basically just, every world leader is just dropped by a fair number right now yeah mm -hmm. i'll yeah. just probably pretend that i didn't hear any of that so <laughs> <laughs> That's daddy how, how does justin smell i'm, I'm oh, really curious uh, about it <laughs> I, okay. I didn't intentionally smell him that's not however i would say that he has a very amazing beautiful personality <laughs> okay okay good Say anything about that yeah i did i did look at him with lost in my eyes let's say oh i'm sure <laughs> you and the rest you of the are world. not the only one danny yes <laughs> you and the whole world <laughs> you know right oh yeah, so wow. I, I, i'm so sorry daddy but our president you know we can't look at his face so we're jealous of you you know you have a beautiful handsome prime minister yeah. Uh, so, so you have to understand our struggle. You know, we have a seventy-one years old grumpy old man. You know, screwing <laughs> our life. I, uh, I, 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 I would ask not to talk about that person because it, it triggers me and I get angry and I really don't want to get angry. Yeah, I don't blame you. Okay, this is officially a Cheeto-free hour. So. Yeah, so Danny, you are a, an amazing writer. I am currently reading your book, The Clothesline Swing, and I really love the style. So when did you start writing it? So The Clothesline Swing was a novel that I've always dreamt of writing. I, I wrote this short story in 2004 or 2005 uh, about um, a couple who one of them is about to pass away. And the other is keeping him alive by telling him stories like fairy tales, like like uh, like the one thousand one nights, yeah, like Shahrazad. And I felt that there's so much more that I can tell through that story. I just didn't have an idea of what real life experiences I can include in that book, in that novel, uh, until I went through the experience of being a refugee myself. So. When I went through the experience of being a queer refugee, I started writing this book, I would say, in 2012. Uh, yeah. It took around three years to write it, so I wrote it for two years back in Beirut, and then for like six months to a year here in Canada. 
and mainly it was my way of dealing with my, my the, the the overwhelming amount of stories that I heard over the past two three years from folks who are experiencing being refugees and and experiencing being refugees and what I realized about those stories is that yes they have a lot of trauma they have a lot of tragedy but at the same time they tell beautiful resilience in them and show you how how strong and like the real material those people are, are made of the actual resilience and strength that they have and that that meant a lot to me and that's why I wrote this book in the begin with it's just stunning, stunning imagery. So is a lot of it based on things that happened in your own life or is it a lot of different narratives? It's, it's funny, I get that question. I get that question quite a lot. I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because I can't claim all those stories of resilience and, and I right. can't claim all the traumas that those characters went through. This is, this is not my story to tell. I would say that I am more true than real when I'm writing. So I try to write true feelings and, and true emotions that I actually went through as a queer Syrian refugee. And I saw uh, of other queer Syrian refugees, queer and trans Syrian refugees. Um, oh, wow. But that's not real. Like none of those events actually happened. And so that's why I always answer this question with I'm more true than real. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more a representation of um, some common experiences. Common experiences, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. A lot of things that, that unify us as people, as queer people. And then when yeah. a group of queer people go through something tremendous, something huge, like a civil war, we even get unified even more and we share this identity. It becomes this fluid identity that we carry with us. And I just wanted to talk about that identity in my book. So when you made the initial trip to Lebanon, can you tell us about the circumstances surrounding that? I was born and raised in Syria, but I left Syria in, uh, when I was 18, 19, and I moved to Egypt for seven or eight years. And then in 2011, I went back to Syria as the journalist that I was uh, to report on the, uh, the Syrian situation. I ended up uh, being part of a group of, uh, of social activists and, and social justice warriors who just wanted to bring democracy and like human rights uh, to Syria and so that uh, the unrest that's starting in 2011 as the opportunity for us to actually speak up about those things. So I came out to those folks and I ended up working with them and starting this underground LGBTQ center in Damascus. Wow. Um, which um, it started as like this tiny little project. We wanted just like five, six people to know about it. And then a year later, 150 people knew about it. Oh my gosh. I would come back home and like I started it literally in my apartment. So I would come back home and I find like 40 people in my living room. I'm like, whoa, how, how do you think the word got out so quickly? It's, it's the secret knock. I, th I honestly believe it's the secret knock. We, uh, yeah. We we tell two people and we give them the secret knock so we know that the person outside the door is somebody that we can trust. Then those two people go and tell two, three people and then those two, three people tell more and more and, and yeah. it's like a tree, it grows bigger and bigger. And I guess there's, I mean, that speaks to how much of a need there was for something oh my God, like this. It was the biggest need ever over there because um, yeah. I was privileged in the fact that I left the country into 
what you can relatively say more liberal of a country in Egypt, or my circumstances were, were more liberal given that I was not uh, bound down by family, by society. I didn't care, basically. I didn't have anybody around me that I cared if they found out that I'm gay, so I came out of the closet um, when I was in Egypt. So I learned quite a lot over there. I yeah. learned a lot at, about queer identity. I met a lot of queer folks over there. I I watched queer movies, uh, short bus, the vagina monologues. Uh, oh, the short bus is so good. Oh, short bus is amazing. I love it. Oh. Um, yeah. And then when I went to Damascus, I just realized that those folks in Damascus were never exposed to those things. Nobody saw short bus or missed the vagina monologues. No, all of those group of lesbian women were watching the vagina monologues and like being drawn to the screen on my laptop, just wanting to hear those beautiful stories about those women who are so liberal and so so welcoming of their sexuality and identity and so open about their story. So Killian, remind me when you left Syria? July of 2011. So uh, my experiment's a little bit different than Danny just because I lived in more conservative city, Aleppo or Halab in Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was way, way more conservative, way like our community was way, way more in the closet. However, I can relate to your own experiment, you know, that you are a foreign, uh, personnel in a foreign country in Egypt, it was easy for you to come out. And the same thing applied to me, you know, uh, because I could I could be identifying myself um, as a queer to many people, uh, like friends or something like that, without being worried about family bounding and family issues. That did not protect me, actually, because, you know, I almost lost my life in one incident. But I think I was privileged to be a foreigner that I could actually I could give a fuck about, you know, like related related people or something like that. So yeah, I'm just second what whatever you said earlier, Danny. Yeah. So like, um, Killian was. Do you know if there was any like underground network, um, like what Danny it's, spoke there, or is it just like the, what you talked there, about? Yeah. There was. The there was. The so when I so when I moved, yeah. So that, that's the thing. Like the the public park or like Hadi Ahmed. That was the place where, where most of LGBT people uh, meet, specifically, specifically, you know, they are male, gay, gay people. But after that, you know, when I started uh, knowing more people, when I started, like, creating, like, networks, we actually started to become, like, a formal network. I mean, not formal network. We were never, like, recognized legally, but we were, like, meeting outside the park in housing. We were doing, like, parties. Um, uh, we were even discussing some serious issues, like STDs, for example. I remember there was another guy. He was also named Danny. <laughs> nice. Uh, who he, he wrote he wrote a letter to the uh, president of Syria asking him to allow us to open our own bars. So you know at least we could meet in these bars and will not be like uh, like confronting police all the time and you know facing fines and prison jail time and everything else. I believe all everything went down after the civil war started to get more serious. Um, so when I left. I didn't hear from my network for about a month before I leave. Um, and I believe people were just scared um, be because the civil war was was really getting intense, specifically in that, that part of the country. Yeah. So, Danny, um, aside from having 40 people show up in your apartment to watch the vagina monologue, I know there's always the informal sort of conversation that's going on behind that, but um, did anything else come of that beside the social space? Did Was there an organization? Was there... 
education going on or is it I mean it was never formal in any way shape or form because it was one or two people actually me and uh, my best friend who's a lesbian mm -hmm. so the two of us would uh, would always organize events we would uh, we would have a sharing circle every now and then or um, sometimes when there's protests so basically people are going outside and protesting uh, either with or against the regime so we would show up, they would show up to my apartment at like seven o'clock in the morning to avoid the traffic of the protest, spend the whole day where we talk, we have card tournaments where we play cards for eight hours, watched movies. Yeah. Uh, I also shared a lot of knowledge about uh, STIs and, and it was a space where folks felt that they can truly be themselves. And that meant a lot to them as well as to me, to be honest, because it I, I felt that I have a purpose in, in this mad, mad world that we were living. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't something like, like, a, like an actual organization in Canada, but it was there where nothing else was. So yeah. that really meant a lot to me, myself, as well as to the folks who attended. It sadly ended up being disbanded uh, this, this uh, when I was arrested for it. <laughs> Oh, and, wow. wow. How do you think someone found out? I think I think at some point you a secret won't stay a secret for too long. And when yeah. 100 people are there and they're sharing stories, one is bound to to tell the wrong person who's going to tell the authorities. I, I ended up being arrested at the airport in Damascus in uh, June, in May, May 2014. Mm -hmm. And I stayed in prison for around six weeks. And then uh, my friends managed to bribe the right person who got me out of jail. Wow. The only condition was that if I'm going to leave jail, I have to leave the country within 24 hours. So lo and behold, in June 2008, uh, in 2012, I was in Beirut, Lebanon. Wow, so that was completely unexpected that you, when you left, right? That's the question. A lot of people are saying, like, you come here for a better life. I'm like, no, I would rather. I love Canada. I adore, I adore the place that I'm in. I, I love the community that I am, and I'm becoming part of this community. But if I can be in my own country where I was born, where I can tell jokes that everybody would understand right away, where I can, like, where I know everybody yeah. around me, where I can be part of the movement in my country to, to change for the LGBTQ community, I I would rather be there. Yeah, um, we talked about we talked about that a lot yesterday. We had another recording, um, and Ahmed he he's the one who's not here. Ahmed brought up the fact that like that's the thing right now. Queer Arabs are scattered around the world, and it's really hard. It's really hard for us to like come together as a community because now everyone's just scattered and like it's sometimes it's hard to find each other and to like create that community that a lot of people have lost since leaving their their like the country they were born and raised in and conversely we also have the problem of we are so connected now by facebook and twitter and instagram and i know a lot of people are like have the double life thing going on where they're just you know always afraid that oh wait did, did i post that to the right account do, does my do my aunts know that about this did i sit did i use their own pronoun it gets very paranoid it gets very exhausting do you have family members who are supportive oh uh, no <laughs> no that's a hard I'm sorry no. that's really hard it's okay it's um 
I have my spiritual family that uh, that means the world to me. I have friends that I've known for 15, 20 years now who mean the world to me and who were there for me when I needed help and support and I was there for them when they needed help, uh, help and support. I don't think yeah. that blood families, we, we put too much... We put too much emphasis on blood families, but blood families are beautiful to be there. That's that's amazing. You're connecting genetically to somebody, but at the same time, if you're not connected socially and or morally with the people that you come from, then the right thing for you to do is to find people that you are connected with socially or morally. And I, I don't regret it. I wish my family well. They're my friends on Facebook. We never talk. Yeah, the word friends lose, used loosely here. We never talk. They have their life. And I don't blame them for it, to be honest. If like I, I went through a lot of counseling to reach this uh, result, but I don't blame them for their life. They are, at the end of the day, a product of their own circumstance, a product of their own society. They don't know anything else. I am privileged to know more, and I... I and there are things that people just don't want to learn, so I'm totally fine with that. We, I could totally agree with you, Danny, on this. I mean, they are also victim for their own ignorance and ideologies. Uh, this is like, you know, homophobia in, in our society has been there for hundreds of years. It's not like something that happened yesterday. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel you because I, I go through the same struggle. I, I do have some few family members who are supportive as well. You know, I'm privileged because of that, but... The majority of them, no, they don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, like, how can we change somebody's heart if they don't want to talk about it? That's the problem. And, and honestly, for me, the question, the right question to ask is, why? Why do I need to change their minds? Why do I need to make them accept me for who I am? I accept me for who I am. The whole community here accepts me for who I am. So why do I need those group of people that on the other side of the world that I haven't been connected with for since since my early adulthood, uh, why do I need them to accept me for who I am? I don't need their acceptance. I don't need their approval. That's a thing of the past. That's that's Danny at the age of 23. I would say preach, preach, brother, preach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... So now that we've got the comparative history started, uh, <laughs> so, so what parts of your trip did you specifically... Uh, add to the truth of the book with did the network come into it did the apartment uh, come into it did, <laughs> yes all of it uh all of it is all the the, the 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 setting think of the novel as a theater play the actors are all my creation but the um the decoration are all built on real life setting oh cool okay i mean like yeah i the actors but they're playing their roles in an apartment in Damascus that's very similar to the apartment I created. In an apartment in Beirut, the same way, the, the same apartment that I lived in when I lived in Beirut. For me, this is how I, I build those stories. And this is how the stories came across, came across as true. They ring true for a lot of people because they are based on true, true feelings that went through myself as well as heard through other people in specific uh, geographical locations that are mentioned in the book. That's so cool. Did you did you write the book in English or in Arabic? I wrote the whole book in uh, in English. Oh, in I, English. Okay. Yeah. 
I, I did write the whole book in English. I'm very proud of myself. Yeah. You should. You it's should. absolutely stunning. Um, I could barely write a paragraph. So yeah, you should be proud of yourself. <laughs> and I'm in engineering school. <laughs> when I finished writing the book, I read it. And I was like, nobody who speaks English as a first language would understand a word that I written. And just like put it in, in like a file on my computer. I was almost going to delete it, actually. I grabbed it, dropped it in the recycle pen, and then an hour later went back, grabbed it from the recycle pen. I swear, and put it in a file, within a file, within a file, outside of my reach, and just forgot about it for like a year. And then somebody, I was I was doing a speech at a at a location at a, like a place called Harrison Springs. Mm-hmm. After the speech, I was approached by this guy who was like, "Hey, do you want to write your memoir?" I'm like, "Um, I'm." 32 at the time, I'm 34 at the moment, I don't think I want to write a memoir yet, and even if I do, I don't think my life is that interesting. Also, it's my life, and it's very private to me, so let's keep it that way. Yeah. But I have this book, so I sent him the book, and after a month, he was like, hey, I'm going to sign you in for a publishing deal. I'm like, uh, okay. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't look for a publisher, it just like happened, and I'm, I'm like, that's insane. That is insane. It was the best thing ever, yeah. And now we're sort of all in this, we're all sort of walking into this moment together where it's like, hey, people are talking about gay Arab shit. You know? Yeah. Like, sure. Yeah. I mean, That's the- it's so, yeah, it's, oh, it's so necessary that the queer Arab narrative is being heard now, like being. Um, and I, you know, I hope our listener are listening to this, you know, uh, episode and learning from Danny because never be ashamed or hesitant about telling your own story. Um, you know, we, we, we might all feel that nobody will care, nobody would listen, but actually there is always somebody who's listening and will be inspired by our story. We will we'll probably change the whole world by telling our story and we might not see it in our own life, but maybe like after we're leaving this world. So never ever be ashamed of documenting or telling your story because it is very important that people listen to the other side of the story. And I, I personally, you know, whenever I go, I'm I'm not a good writer, but I'm I, I talk a lot. You know, I, whenever I go, I'm telling people about my story as a refugee, as a queer Muslim, as somebody who is an interfaith family. And believe it or not, you know, people are so receptive to this kind of uh, stories. Uh, they are hungry to the, to to hear the other uh, part of the narrative. Um, they are tired from the typical mainstream stories that they hear all the time. And I'm not saying that as just as an entertainment, you know, uh, issue. I'm saying that as an educational issue, you know, matter, not as just an entertainment. Though. Queer Arabs telling their own stories. I mean, instead of like Westerners trying to tell it for them is so powerful and needed. Yes. And if I might add to that, I think it is a shared responsibility. So there is the responsibility of publishers and folks with power within the artistic scene, as well as honestly, anybody who's planning anything. Like if you're planning a panel about refugees, at least have a refugee sitting there or else you'll be like planning a panel about about, uh, women and all of the presenters are men. It's as weird as that, you know what I mean? So having, there is that responsibility that is on on the the publishing industry, the, the Canada Canadian uh, literature scene, um, the the folks uh, uh, planning uh, stuff within human rights circles. We they need to have us rep- being represented because we don't have the power to be 
to represent ourselves yet. And then when we are represented, it is our responsibility to then uh, take that chance and give it the true and meaningful thought that it, it deserves. Because standing there on a stage and telling a sobby story about how you came to Canada gives power back to the Canadian narrative of they come here and they're happy ever after. Yeah. But telling a story that is complex, that tells how much you love your, your home country and how impossible it is that you live in that country and how beautiful that your new country is and how challenging it can be to integrate into this new country. This complexity is what makes a good story from a narrative point of view. So Danny, uh, tell us a bit about your love life uh, in Syria, if you had any, in, in Canada, if you have any. Oh, so my we, we will, you know, I'm, I'm if curious. You want I, to. I, like, I, like, I like these kind of details, so I'm just the other part of the audience, you know? <laughs> All right. Uh, question, when is this going to be aired? In two Fridays from now. Amazing. So on next Tuesday, I'm proposing to my partner. <gasps> oh! Oh, my oh my God! Does your partner oh know anything? Right. Does he your partner have any idea? Know. No, he doesn't know. Oh my he God! Doesn't... Oh my God! Congratulations! If this podcast was re released before that day, I am going to come after you, all three of you. <laughs> okay, well, let me just write okay. a big caps embargo. We're going to write a note. Embargo What's your partner name until again? next Friday. I think I, I think I know his mess you know his account on Messenger, so I'll I'll you know be, no, I'm I'm just kidding. Wow, that's amazing, Danny. Do you, like what are you? Uh, you don't have to tell us details if you don't want to, but do you have any cool plan? I I am happy to share details. I think it's amazing and beautiful to share those kind of details because a lot of people out there don't actually realize that they have the power to do it. So. Uh, I have my evening in Damascus that I do. It's an annual fundraiser that I do. And at the end of the fundraiser, I am planning to propose uh, in front of 200 people that are attending the evening. Uh, wow. Oh. <laughs> he doesn't know, but all of our friends are going to be there. Yeah. Literally, all of our friends are going to be there. Personally, I love the texture of wood, and he loves the texture of uh, yellow gold. So I asked a flight attendant friend of mine uh, to buy me uh, a ring from Hawaii. They have this specific wood that they engrave with gold Ooh. called kawa wood. Ooh. So I bought him a ring from Hawaii. I've never been myself, but uh, <laughs> now he has Gorgeous. a ring. From that is so romantic. Proposing on the stage. Ah, how, oh my gosh. Did you meet in Canada or before that? No, we met on Tinder. We met, not Grindr, I promise you, <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for the no, new idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> Killian, Killian, are you going to switch your uh, your main best friend to Tinder instead of Grindr now? After hearing Danny, hell yeah. <laughs> Tinder, if you're listening, sponsor us. <laughs> Yes, please. And send me Hallelujah. I just mentioned you. Come on. Yeah. Uh, support yeah. local queer author. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, we met years ago on Tinder. Uh, we have been dating for two years. Uh, we moved in together last year. And Beautiful. I think he's the one. I honestly think he's the one. We never fight, which is quite amazing. 
my experiences before in all of the past relationships that I had is endless amount of fighting. Me and this guy, we never fight. Me and Matthew, we never fight. Yeah, I relate to that with Ellie. Things just feel easy and natural. And it's Bro, just... It should feel that way. Yes. And it's such a refreshing feeling because when I think back at other, you know, relationships that did not last, you know, those there was a lot of like not communicating or fighting or any of that. And in um, a lot of moments where it's like I, this thing is important to me and I want to discuss it with you, but I'm also so afraid of upsetting you that I'd rather just let it lie. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, walking on eggshells. Or, yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying that every relationship should be conflict-based sometimes an occasional conflict is okay mm -hmm. but it should it can't be anxiety for you have to be willing to speak and to work i completely agree with that that's uh, no truer words were ever spoken like honestly like we we are the kind of people and i think that comes with maturity that comes with age yeah. we are the people that we we sit down together and i'll be like um honey a couple of hours ago you said something and it bothered me and this is how it bothered me. This is how it made me feel. And he would say, oh, I'm truly sorry. I really am sorry. How would you like me to do better? And I'm like, so we're not fighting? Hold on. <laughs> what? Sorry, you said sorry? Like, I don't know what you, to do you were, you were supposed to start shouting. That was your cue to shout at me and throw things irrationally. <laughs> exactly. Like, where, what, what? What? Hold up. What? That's really weird. Wow. So it's all to actually, like, honestly, like, it, it's so beautiful right now because we literally wake up in the morning, yeah. we have a beautiful morning together, we go to the gym together, we come back home, he goes to work, I start working on my writing, yeah. I make him dinner, and we eat and watch TV, and there's no conflict, it's, it's normal. Yeah. I think queer people who didn't have role models to what our relationships would look like, we only learned what relationships look like from TV shows or something. It's so true. TV shows are all about conflict or else they're going to be dropped. So you end up with all of those episodes after after episodes of people fighting with each other. That's yeah. not real life. Real life is normality and in a way a bit boring, to be honest. In a, Yeah, in the best of ways. Ellie and I have talked a lot of, not to diss you, L word, but the L word was an example, at least for me coming out, where every single person cheats on each other. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. And there was some truth to that in, in some, my friend circles. Really? Yeah. I just think that was, I mean, I know at the time when the L word came out, it was very necessary. It was 2004. But looking back, I'm like, why did all of those characters have to backstab each other? All the queer characters. Like, why are these people friends? They basically fucked each other over at the drop of a hat. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, we definitely needed better queer role models. How to have a healthy relationship. Yeah, we all, we, we all need, like, that that couple in our lives. But not superficially. We need it, you know, as an example with, you know, some of the ugly details coming out. But not, like, in a conflict sort of way. But, oh, they talk things out. And the partner listened. And there's, mm -hmm. like or somebody fucked up and you know they discussed they apologized but then they also said how can we stop this from being a thing in the future yeah exactly that exactly all of that and and that and that's sad because in our in our representation on TV it's the usual kill your queers characters yeah so in yeah. every show we have a queer person they come out 
and they either have like gay bashing or they end up like being killed somehow or the relationship never lasts you know what i mean that's quite sad because like what do we where is the beauty of our relationships where are, where is the resilience where are the people who are literally just being themselves i don't see that on tv like the only place where i see those that on tv is like rupaul's drag race honestly right. God yeah. Damn it, yeah. God damn it, RuPaul. <laughs> so, Danny, Danny, um, let's go back a little bit in your timeline when you were in Syria before you were 18 and after you came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about, about professional details, about organizing. What about personal details? What, what kind of challenges did you face growing up as a queer man in Syria? Um, in Lebanon. Tell us a bit about it if you want to, if you're comfortable to share with us. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, um, it's funny to me when people say, like, when did you realize you're gay? I, I was born gay. I've, I've always... <laughs> Aren't like, we all? <laughs> it's it's yeah. weird. Like, I, I, I hate this question, to be honest with you. I hate that question so much because, like, um, when did you realize you're straight? When right. did yes! You realize, yes! Like, <laughs> seriously, dude, like, because it's ra- around the same time that you realize you're straight or realize that I'm gay. So I've, I've always known that I'm queer. And that really affected my ability to, to build friendships, to, to, to find love and support in my network. I felt like I'm an outsider literally from the first day that I went to school. And I kept trying to impress. I kept trying to like be the, the best that I can while being asexual in the corner, like without actually building any expectation of what I am really you see what I mean and that that was sad like that ended up being like me being the the bullied kid at school throughout my childhood I remember I was like 10 or 11 I was sitting I remember that day clearly I was sitting in the uh, schoolyard and I would say there's like 300 children around me and they're all playing and I remember completely that was a moment when I thought to myself I must be the loneliest child in the world because none of them were interested in talking to me. And if you ask them, most probably the only reason they remember my name is because they want it, they, they make fun of my name. I felt quite negative about that. And then when I started to realize my queerness more and more at the age of 13 or 14, it, it felt like a negative message from God, like on top of all what happened to you and top of all the bullying and on top of all the, the abandonment issues and and feeling that you're not worthy, you're now gay. So deal with that. And I'm like, what do I do with that? And like, I start, I remember walking from school and it's like a 35 minutes of a walk back to home. And I would count my steps to see how many steps I would take from school to home. If the, the numbers were even, that means that God is okay with me being gay and I should like be gay. And if they're, they're not even, then I should fight it and I should change who I am and all of that. It's, it's I kept trying to find messages from a God that, for me personally, at the moment, believe doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. it felt quite lonely and, and challenging. But at the same time, I, I, I fell in love with a boy. I was 14, he was 17. We pulled around quite a lot. And every single time that I was with that guy, it just felt right and felt beautiful and I felt loved. And I thought to myself, there's no way in hell that that feeling is negative in any way, that that's something that I shouldn't care for. You know? Something, something that... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, thank you. So this is something that people, they don't understand about our queer mentality. 
they they throw these words on us, calling us sinners, calling us whatever names. They don't understand that these words hurt more than physical beating up. You know, I mean, I was beaten up before for being a queer, but I think words wording is what hurt me the most, not the physical pain. I mean, last week I had a I had a meeting with a local imam in San Diego County. He's one of the like largest or like the biggest Muslim leaders in the community. So I, I was I was talking to him in a meeting and he said that, oh, he started the conversation with homosexuality is illegal in Islam. I'm 21 plus tax and shipping, so I'm old enough to, <laughs> to, to, you know, to digest his word and like, it doesn't affect me anymore. My, my, my skin is too, too thick right now to, to be affected by this kind of word. But imagine he's saying that to a 14, 13, 12 years old child like, they don't realize that their words, it's, it's terrorizing us as queer people, especially when we're growing up. I mean, we're believing everything we hear. We're in an inner struggle between our sexuality, our families, and our own beliefs, especially religious beliefs, society-wise. So, yeah, I mean, like, I understand your struggle when you're counting the steps because I'm just going through my own memories and, and remembering that I actually did that also. I just didn't know that somebody else was thinking the same, so... I really appreciate you sharing that details with us, Danny. Yeah, of course. It's really a lonely experience growing up as a queer person in the Middle East. It's it's a lonely experience, and it's it's designed that way. Really, you're designed to to let go of of anything that makes you stand out within that community. It's not a it's not a religious thing. It's a political thing, really. Religion is being used by imams and by presidents and by kings and by sultans to to ensure that everybody falls in line. Yep. And religion is being morphed and changed to to fit whatever current authority we have on top of us. So I don't blame religion itself. I, I really don't like I am I am agnostic myself. I don't believe in organized religion. I do believe in a higher power, but I don't believe in organized religion altogether. But at the same time, as somebody who actually studied Islam and studied Christianity and went deep and tried to understand those religions, you would notice in many ways the religion itself is just a spiritual book trying to guide you towards meditation and, and, and finding a connection with a higher power there is in the universe. It's, it's not about the rules and regulations of who you are and, and, and what you do and what identities you have. Islam specifically, for example, I honestly don't believe that Islam has a punishment for homosexuality. The, all the different capital crimes in Islam, so murder, uh, theft, whatever it is, all of them have uh, cheating, all of them have capital punishments for them that are mentioned in the Quran, yeah. except homosexuality. They read the story of the Quran and how, according to the Qasas al-Awaleen, the, the, the stories of the old people, how God grabbed the city of the people of Lotte and lifted it up high and then dropped it down again. And that's how they came up with the idea of throwing a, a gay man off a rooftop and, and that's how they punish homosexuality. There's no mention in Quran or Hadith in anywhere that this is the actual punishment for homosexuality. And in fact, the first time that that punishment took place was over 400, 500 years after the death of the Prophet. Exactly. It's opportunistics who climbed this, this wave of religion, you know, and they took advantage of it to empower their, 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 their own interests. Mm -hmm. And if you look deeper, actually, to the uh, Islamic history, you will find homophobia actually was brought to the Middle East by the colonizers. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, even even India itself, uh, like homosexuality was something holy in them, in their Hindu tradition, other religion that you know founded in India. But the first anti uh, anti homosexuality law that was passed by the British when the British took over India, and the same thing they did in the Middle East. And and we 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 now we now know because you know we read now the you know the U.S. history and you know the, the European history, but because in the Middle East we didn't have the we didn't have the luxury of reading uh, about the hist- LGBT history. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you're right. There is no verse in the Quran that says hate homosexuals or punish them. Yeah. Um, like literally zero. The Muhammad did not. The Prophet Muhammad, you know, peace be upon him. Like he never punished anybody for being homosexual. Uh, there is there is a zero story during Muhammad time punishing someone. Actually, one of his wife's friends. She was a trans woman. I understand that trans is different than, you know, homosexuality. But if, if one of Muhammad's wife, which is, you know, she's, they were the same level with him in, in, in holiness, had an, had a trans woman as her friend, it means it was something acceptable during Muhammad's time, even if it wasn't celebrated. Yeah. And um, what did the imam say to try to justify this? He said that there is no uh, evidence that that homosexuality is something natural, like it comes, like if you were born with it, there's only 50% evidence. I told him then, uh, why do you why do you choose to side with the other 50%? Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plus, you, you know, there is 168 species that have homosexuality in it. Like, if it's not natural, how come animals are, are practicing homosexuality? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, 168 yeah. Fund, you know, discovered species had it. Um, yeah, but but if you're going to connect the animals there, they're going to talk to you about like, are you comparing yourself to? Exactly. To... Yeah. yeah you know what? Whole, we we are trapped. Yeah, I mean, but we are part of the animals. You know, uh, like family. You know, we're uh, just a little bit developed with our yeah, brains. For and... sure, but like homophobic people are gonna abuse that and like say, oh well, you're comparing yourself to animals, and it, it sucks because well, like they try to twist twist things in their favor when, like the, when they're telling me it's, it's something unnatural then i have the right to 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 compare myself to anything natural on this earth no you know? i agree i fully so, agree i agree yeah it's just my thing is like it sucks whenever we bring something like that up and then people who are homophobes will twist that and make some perverse like interpretation so yeah it's, it's too yeah. bad like it's so hard because it feels like sometimes it's hopeless and there's you're just talking to a wall yeah. We are, yeah, we are actually talking to all. Yeah, oh, hold yeah. on, hold on. It's not. It's definitely not hopeless. We are, we are living in a in a in a world where the younger generation have endless access of information, and we are making waves, and we are clearly a topic of discussion nowadays as queer people, specifically queer Arabs. To be honest, the goal here is not to change the society today. There is no way that we can change the society today. Logistically speaking. Honestly, like, um, I was asked, do you want to uh, to advocate for the government of Syria? Uh, do you want to advocate for the government of Syria to um, to accept homosexuality, to consider homosexuality uh, like lawful? And uh, I hear water. I know, yeah. me too. Oh, Kelly. it is me. I am Kelly. so sorry. I, I'm, Are you at the pool? My, my... My my feet inside the pool, yeah, because it's hundred degree here. So oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm I'm gonna mute myself. I'm That's alright. <laughs> I was asked once in a in a panel if I want to advocate for the government in Syria to legalize homosexuality, to legalize gay marriage, or whatever, and I said no, definitely not. 
I don't want the government in Syria to legalize gay marriage or to legalize homosexuality because that's not the goal. The goal is to change the society. And then when you change the society, changing the laws of the land are going to be much easier and, and permanent. So I want the government of Syria to give a space for folks like myself to advocate in Syria and to, to give us funding to, to run uh, workshops and panels about LGBTQ rights, about our identities, about who we are. And as we uh, slowly but surely educate the society, the society then will stop being homophobic. But if you came from above and decided that, no, we have to change the laws, we have to legalize gay marriage, or whatever it is, because legalizing gay marriage seems to be the goal for all queer people, and I'm like, that's not, oh, sure, whatever. That is that is not going to solve the problem. What's going to solve the problem is changing the society itself. I agree. Like, yeah, we have marriage equality in the United States for now. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't matter if you can't get a job because somebody won't hire you, and it doesn't matter if that's legal, if, there's, if it's just impossible to prove and fight back against. It has mm -hmm. to be so when the time comes and the next generation comes up, the person doing the hiring doesn't care. The exactly. person who's giving them health care doesn't care. They're just another patient. Yeah, yeah. We almost, it's like we literally do not want to be special anymore because it's kind of exhausting. But don't you believe that removing that, I'm not talking about legalizing uh, like uh, same-sex marriage, but don't you believe that decriminalizing homosexuality will help people come out of the surface and maybe create small communities without worrying about legal consequences in the Middle East? Because um, that's, that's, you know, that's pretty much what, what the stone wall was. They didn't want same-sex marriage. They wanted just to be free, going to a bar and drink and then not being persecuted. So, yeah, I mean, it's been, in Middle East, I understand there is more, more challenges like honor killing, family traditions, religion. But maybe that legal... Uh, consequences if we remove it, if we ease it, maybe that will be easier for us to come out at least. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that what's it called Stonewall happened in the 1963, I assume, maybe 69, I can't remember, uh, 63. 67. 67. Oh, okay, it's 60 something. And at the time, homosexuality was illegal in the US. Uh, so if we're going to use that example, what was legal in the US at the time was freedom of speech and freedom of protest. So those are the things that we need. So we ensure that the society can move towards changing towards democracy, changing towards inclusion and accepting diversity. But if you, I don't know, if Bashal Assad came, came on TV this morning and was like, hey, so I'm legalizing gay people, I assure you that there is going to be a surge in honor killings for queer people the, literally the next day because society is going to react negatively towards that. Society are not going to take that easily. That's not an easy pill to swallow. They're going to react negatively, not towards Bashar Assad, but towards queer people around them who are celebrating being legal now. Provide freedom of speech, provide freedom of protest. That would allow you to start panels, to change the society, to talk to people, to change minds. Some minds of the older generation and some minds of the younger ones and then slowly but surely insert that ideology into your society. And then you can talk about legalizing stuff. That makes sense. Like something like this is pretty gradual. Definitely not overnight. Thank you so much again for coming on. 
I'm so excited about the proposal. I can't wait to let us, hear let us how, know how it goes. Give us an update. Yeah, we'll, we'll post the update to the website after the episode. Yeah. Is posted. <laughs> let us know how it goes. This episode is not going to come out before the 31st of July. It'll be on, it'll be August 3rd. Is that next Friday? Yeah, August, August 3rd. Is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. perfect. Okay, good. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Give us an update so we well, can let our listeners know how it goes. And I'm sure it'll be amazing. Danny, where can we get your book? Yeah, where can people find uh, your book? Preferably the with the greatest percentage to you. It's available on Amazon.com and Amazon.ca. And I know that a lot of queer-focused bookstores in the U.S. has it. It's literally available in, in every bookstore here in Canada, but I don't know about the U.S. and, and what, what regulations you're having under the dictatorship that you're living under at the moment. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows, right? Um, just Who so knows? everyone That's knows, true. I have it on my Kindle. Yeah. Woo! Woo! And it, yeah, so everyone, it's called The Clothesline Swing. Where can people reach out to you or find you on like social media and stuff? So my website is danyramadan.com, D-A-W-Y-R-A-M-A-D-A-N.com. Mm -hmm. And you can send me an email uh, at hello at danyramadan.com. I'm also on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and I'm not on Grindr. <laughs> <laughs> Shame Sorry, on you, Danny. Sorry, well, Danny. You don't need it anymore. That's the good news. <laughs> Hashtag monogamous relationship, my friend. Hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> and um, to reach out to us, you can, everyone, you can write us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com or thequeerarabsinarabic at gmail.com if you speak Arabic and you'd like to talk to Killian and Ahmed about um, anything about their Arabic episodes. And we are on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at The Queer Arabs. And our website is thequeerarabs.com. And you can find our podcasts on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, all those fun things. And please rate and review us on iTunes. And thank you so much, Danny, again. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, and we will have links posted to the Amazon, the Amazon links posted for the book online when this episode airs. Oh, good idea. Uh, yeah, we'll put and the website for Danny. And a, and a link to Tinder so we can find oh, husbands over God. there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Thank you all so much. Thank you.